back in my younger, <clears throat> uh, more fit days, I was involved in athletics. I once played in a, a soccer match. It was a, a friendly. If you don't know soccer, friendly means that it doesn't really count for anything. It's just a, you know, it doesn't count on your record, isn't working towards a tournament. <clears throat> it's just a game you're playing for fun. But those people who were involved in putting the game together were convinced it was going to be a big deal. And so there was a lot of hype, a lot of buildup for this game that did not matter. And <clears throat> so they hyped it up. They got a pretty, a pretty big crowd, a decent turnout. And then the pregame, you would have thought it was the Super Bowl or something. They had everything going. So we come out on the field to play, and the refs are there, and there's no soccer ball in the field. All of a sudden, you hear a plane go overhead. The crowd starts buzzing. Here comes a skydiver. He jumps out of the plane. He's got smoke trailing behind him, <clears throat> floats down. Takes a while. Finally, he makes it down to the ground. He's got our ball for the game, and the crowd goes wild. <clears throat> and that was the climax. It was a 1-1 game. In friendlies, you don't play overtime, so it was a tie. Everyone went about their way. No one's life changed, and about three days later, nobody remembered the game even happened. <clears throat> well, I would say just the opposite of that event would be the arrival of Jesus Christ. In that game, it was all fanfare <laughs> and no follow-through. With the arrival of Jesus Christ, we have one coming humble, quietly, born of a young virgin teenager from a no-name town of Nazareth on a trip to another little town of Bethlehem to take care of a tax situation, no place for them to stay. They don't even have a fit place to sleep, let alone a fit place to bear a child. And there, the Savior of the world entered into time and space, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lied in, the feeding lie in a feeding trough for animals. It's only initial visitors, a few lowly, poor shepherds. And yet here we are, 2,000 some years later, and all around the world, tens of millions of people gather today to exalt the name of their Savior and their King, Jesus Christ. A life, a death that literally changed everything. And our text today will highlight some of those early beginnings and humbling, humble beginnings, and then yet just the uniqueness of a life that will radically change a fallen creation. <clears throat> We've taken, we're taking December and doing an, an Advent series, and we're, we're looking at Isaiah for that Advent. Advent, just a, a couple reminders. It means coming or arrival or appearance. And so it is a really twofold as the Christian church today as we celebrate Advent there is a looking backwards and a celebration that indeed Jesus Christ the Savior has come and he has come to save his people 
And he has established his church and his kingdom, and is, which we now are a part of. And we rejoice in that. Our hope rests in that. And yet our hope doesn't come just from looking backwards, because also part of Advent is a longing, is a waiting, is an anticipation, even including a little bit of lament as we await the second Advent. Because right now, we live in an age that is broken, that is still affected in, in, by the curse and sin cursed, where, where hurt and sorrow and confusion abound. I don't need to name every place, but you look at your life. You look at the plans for your life and the dreams for your life, and, and you say, it just it hasn't come about. The, the job isn't what I thought. The relationships of, of my family aren't what I dreamed they would be. It, it's not all, it's just not as it should be. Things are broken, things are wrong. And we look for Jesus Christ in that second advent when he comes and all is made right. And so celebrating the advent helps us then as the church to, to find our place in that story, as we said last week, between the once upon a time and the happily ever after between the first advent and the second advent. Remember, as we look at Isaiah and the prophets of old, as they prophesy of the coming Christ, they're, they're looking forward. Isaiah writes some 700 years before Jesus Christ is born. And so he is looking forward to the coming. And the prophets were never <clears throat> fully sure everything that they understand and, and grasp, even as they prophesy. But a helpful way, I'll repeat it just because I do think it's helpful, a way to think of it is, as they look forward, they see sort of this mountain rising out of the earth. And they are looking to it, and that is what they are prophesying. They see this event. And so when they say that there is a coming, the Messiah is coming, and they use language of all that's going to happen, and it's sort of prophesied as a single event. Well, just like when you look off in the distance and see a mountain, it kind of you just see it growing out of the earth. But as you get closer, you start to see, oh, there's kind of more contours to this mountain. There's actually a couple different peaks. And then once you actually get to the mountain and you climb it and you're on top of it, then you realize, oh, there's actually another peak a distance from here. That's sort of how the prophecies in the Old Testament work. They look forward and you see, oh, there is the fulfillment. But you see there's multiple reference or multiple fulfillments. And so as you come to one peak, you see, okay, here it is, but there's still some out there. And so with Isaiah, as he prophesies the Messiah, much of it we see has come to pass in the coming of Jesus Christ to this earth. 2,000 years ago, that prophecy was fulfilled. And yet you'll see as we go through and you hear the language, a lot of the language, though, is still awaiting that second advent for its final fulfillment. And as the church, it's helpful for us to find ourselves right dab in the middle of it. To be able to look back and to look forward. So we do that. <clears throat> and as we look at Isaiah 11 for a few moments this morning, I want us to be able to acknowledge the brokenness of things now. See the beauty that we have right now in the midst of that brokenness and then hope for the glory that is to come. <clears throat> okay, so context, just a, a few, couple minutes on the context of Isaiah 11, and then we'll, we'll draw through a few points out on it. 
Isaiah, <clears throat> beginning part of Isaiah, is Jesus, or is, is Isaiah, the voice of the Lord God calling to Isaiah, calling to Israel, to Judah to repent. And he, he's telling them, as the nations around them grow, as Israel feels more and more isolated, and nations, the power of nations around them grow, he says, you can trust in me, but you need to continue in the worship. You need to continue in the life I've set before you. But the nations are not trusting in the Lord. So you have Ahaz, who is the king at that time. So he decides, Assyria seems like the strongest nation. I'll ally with Assyria. I'll put my hope and my trust in Assyria. And God says through Isaiah, do not do that. Trust in me. And Ahaz ignores the words of Isaiah. And as they ally with Assyria, then you hear the messages of Isaiah say, fine, you want to try to ally with them? Well, then they will be the axe of my judgment upon you. And Assyria comes, wipes out a bunch of Israel, takes them as exiles. And so he uses Assyria to judge his people. And then Isaiah starts to say, though, judgment is going to come, though, on Assyria itself. So he's looking forward now and prophesying, saying, this same nation that was used to bring judgment to you, I'm going to bring judgment upon them. Because God remains faithful to his people, despite our unfaithfulness. And as he draws them back, he says, I will judge Assyria. So at the end of chapter 10, you have this picture of Assyria as this great nation, of this great forest of trees, all powerful big trees. And God takes an axe and he lays it to the root of all of them. And so now you look out and you just see a giant field of stumps as God has brought judgment. But then to offer comfort to God's people, okay, so you've brought, you'll, Assyria is, is bringing judgment on us, you will bring judgment on Assyria eventually, but what does that mean for us? What does that do for us? And so a word of hope and a word of comfort grows out of that context. <clears throat> and it's with that imagery you see in verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Why does he say stump of Jesse? Well, Jesse is David's father. We think back to the Davidic covenant that from the line of David will come a king who will reign forever. But he uses this imagery of stump because he's just looked out on this field full of stumps. It's going to be some maybe 200 years after Isaiah that the final king of Judah will have his eyes plucked out. His reign will end. And you're going to have 500 years basically where the line, there's no one from the line of David on a throne. They are nearly forgotten. They are cast away, a rotting stump out there somewhere. I mean, you think 500 years is a long time. It would be like Martin Luther time. If you're going 500 years back for us. And so he offers this word of encouragement because that stump is going to be nearly forgotten. And yet out of that nearly forgotten stump will be a shoot. Again, that humble beginning. A shoot will come from it. I think he says, most commentators 
agree that he says a stump of Jesse instead of saying from the line of David because it's not just another king down the line of David, but this is another David. In fact, this is the true and greater David. When you think of David, that warrior, shepherd, poet, king, the true and the greater warrior, shepherd, caring king, and Jesus is coming. And so he promises that, but then he turns the analogy just a little bit, and he says, a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. Now he turns back to the root of it. That yes, Jesus will, will come, he'll enter time and space through the lineage of David. He will be that king that is promised, but he is also the root of Jesse. It is God himself who is the source, the origin of the messianic promise. It is God who, who says prepare the way and it is God then who prepares the way as we saw last week. Who raises the va- valleys and, and flattens the mountains for his coming. We see the sovereignty of God that he is the root. He is the source. He is the supreme, the sovereign. He has decided to work through, through Jesse and through David and through this line. And then he is the fulfillment, fulfillment in the end of that shoot from Jesse as well, who will be king of kings and lord of lords forever. This is the whole and total plan of our sovereign God, and yet he enters so humbly in this sense. Isaiah then goes on to give us a picture of what this king will look like in verse 2. Verse 2, it tells us that the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. If you've been with us through the Gospel of Mark, or even if not, you will see that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he goes out into the wilderness. There he's baptized, and the Spirit of the Lord descends upon him. And the Spirit of the Lord empowers him first to enter into that temptation with Satan and to be faithful. Where where God's people fail, where Israel failed in the wilderness temptation, where we fail in our wilderness temptation, Jesus Christ did not. The Spirit of the Lord rested upon him. And then it empowered him then for his mission. That through the rejection and the suffering, he would have his mind and eyes set so that on the way to Jerusalem, he would be faithful to the mission. We saw that at the end of Mark where he's marching to Jerusalem to Passover with such a determination that it says either people are amazed or they're scared. And the Spirit of the Lord rests upon Jesus Christ. And what does that look like? It is a spirit of wisdom and understanding. Jesus Christ, our King, will be marked by a spirit of wisdom and understanding. These are judicial attributes. Isaiah makes them here in in contrast to Assyria and their violence and their pride and their arrogance But he also makes it in contrast to the leaders of Israel and their unfaithfulness. And they do not heed the word of the prophets. He says, no, not so with Jesus. He will judge with a spirit of wisdom and understanding. He goes on to say, not not judging with eyes or ears, it says later in verse 3. 
That's that statue of Lady Justice, as you think of her, with the blindfold. Not deceived, not enticed, not influenced by appearances, not floundering and flip-flopping and going back and forth. But wisdom, understanding. You think of the wise men as they came and visited our Lord later and as he began to grow into such a part of the Christmas story. And yes, that happened, and so you read the history of it. But also, it serves there as a metaphor for us as well, doesn't it? As the wise men come and bow before Jesus, that the wisdom of this world would pale and bow before the wisdom of our Savior and our King. And aren't you thankful for the wisdom and the understanding of God. Especially, you think, in the midst of our own indecision and confusion and just not knowing exactly what to do and how we live in that state so much of our lives, it feels. But we have a God who is wise and decisive. He sees the big picture. He knows how to, to work through things. Man, you think of it in comparison. I don't get political here too often, but I mean, you think of it in comparison to like, we're entering into an election year and just the amount of stupidity that you're going to have to hear and put up with from everyone who runs an ad and everyone who's running for anything, it seems like. It's like just in a complete lack of wisdom everywhere, swayed by every opinion that comes down the track where they're deceived and they jump back and forth and it just feels there is nothing anchoring. And they treat us like we're complete idiots, like somehow we're going to buy this garbage that's being said all the time. That's the age we live in. But we look back to Christ and we look forward to a king who rules and is marked by complete wisdom and understanding. Secondly, he's marked by a spirit of counsel and power. A spirit of counsel and power. That's the idea that, sort of like we looked at the end of last Sunday, of the sovereign shepherd, the combination of two things, counsel, that he, he looks into your situation, he knows you, he cares about you. He can see the path forward. He can offer counsel in the way forward. But then he also has the absolute power to make it happen. <laughs> if you've ever been involved in counseling, you can know that's a, the frustrating thing is you finally maybe think of the right thing to say and be helpful. But in the end, you're still completely dependent upon the Lord to produce that change. Well, here God comes in a spirit of counsel, a spirit of compassion, of involvement, and yet with power to see it completely through. Finally, he comes, it says, with the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Really, both of those words are modified by of the Lord. So you could read the end of verse 2 as he comes when the spirit of the knowledge of the Lord and the fear of the Lord. He understands the truth. He knows the truth. Knowledge and fear of the Lord always belong together that way. He's in awe, committed to, 
motivated to obedience and to worship of our great and mighty God. How countercultural is that <clears throat> to the age we live in? To be marked with wisdom and understanding, with counsel, the ability to be involved and to get involved, and the power to see it through, to be marked by a knowledge of God and a fear of God. I mean, I bust on the political system because it's easy to bust on, and it just feels like it's, you know, it just feels like as they get up there and tell you they're public servants and doing this for you, you just want to laugh. But then it gets sad when you look at the church itself and see so many of its shepherds and leaders that there just feels like there is not a knowledge of the Lord, a fear of the Lord. I mean, just in the past week or so, one of like the you know, churches in America that has had a strong testimony, seeing great pastors come through at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, just rocked with scandal as a, their pastor is dismissed and all this ugliness of affairs and things come out. And you just see, man, the spirit of this age is, is just marked by confusion. It's marked by taking God and moving him aside and thinking we know better, of having a pride that, that moves the way we work instead of looking to the Lord. And in the midst of this brokenness, as here's a picture of beauty, it came in a manger. People still worship it today. And when he comes again, he will rule and he will reign with perfect wisdom and understanding and the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God. Then we move to a picture of his reign in verses 3 through 5. <clears throat> and really all it is is an outworking of a picture of the king. If this is who he is in verse 2, well this then marks his reign in verse 3 through 5. That the attributes of our God, who he is, and his actions work together. They are always consistent. So the quality of his reign matches the quality of his character. Here read verse 3. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what I see or decide dispute by what ears see. Verse 4. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. To, to care for the poor, to care for the downtrodden. Not to use them as a pawn to get elected, but to care for them with righteousness and with equity and with complete justice. To not be swayed by money, to not be swayed by power. But as we have seen in Mark, kingdom greatness, to, to serve the very least of these, to lay down your life for the very least of these, to be a servant of all. That will mark his reign. And how does he carry it out with an intimidating weapon and a powerful army? No. It says he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. He speaks and it happens by the power of his word. By the power of his word, he overcomes darkness. By the power of his word, he gives us life. 
So often people are wanting something big to happen in their life. They're wanting some sort of big change. We have the word of God in all of its power. That as we come to it, God speaks to us from its pages. The breath of God is upon it. And no, normally you don't read it and walk away just like with a jolt of lightning. Everything has changed. But you keep going to it and going to it and by it, he saves your soul. He gives you endurance to the end. He helps you through the most difficult things of life. He brings joy in the midst of sorrow. He gives life. So this king doesn't come with the powerful army, yet he comes as that warrior shepherd king with words of truth and words of life. It's like we saw in Isaiah 40 last week. The flower fades, the grass fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. His written word and his word become flesh. Jesus Christ, our King of Kings. Verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The idea with the belt, again, taking righteousness and faithfulness, that it's the idea of action. He's girding up for action. He's not just King of Kings and Lord of Lords from a distance who sets us off and hopes we do well. But he's the warrior king who fights for us. He was in session right now, reigning at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. Six through nine then, <clears throat> as we start to see just the beauty of what it will look like when the Messiah truly breaks in. We look forward, we, we, we see the beginning of this now, we look forward to it at the consummation of his kingdom. Listen to some of this kind of apocalyptic literature almost. The, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. <clears throat> I think just a few things that rise out of there that there will be reconciliation of old hostilities. A reconciliation of old hostilities, the healing of division, the healing of fights. There'll be a relieving of old fears will be done away with. Beauty in the place of brokenness. There'll be a change to the very nature of things, a change to the order of things, a very renewal, much like you would read about in Eden. Maybe your mind goes back to Eden as you read this. Verse 8, really the most powerful of the imagery, the nursing child and the snake. <clears throat> you remember when God pronounced judgment when he pronounced a curse upon the earth after sin, he pronounces two curses. He looks at Adam and Eve and he doesn't curse them, but he curses all of the earth, all of creation because of them. 
And he talks about the hardships of life that it will be theirs now because of the curse and, and the havoc it's going to wreck on creation. And then he turns to the serpent and he curses the serpent. But right after the curse, he gives a word of rescue. He gives a word of hope. You remember that? The serpent, it's going to be at enmity with the woman. There's going to be ongoing battle and warfare, but there's going to be a seed. And the seed will come from this woman, and he will be at war with the serpent. And the serpent will look to destroy him. And the serpent will bruise his heel. He will. He'll, he will, in that lazy way the serpent lays down there, hidden, take a strike and bruise the heel of Jesus. And we see that in the passion of Jesus Christ. We see that in his rejection, in his suffering, in his death. But it's the plan of our God. It's both the root and the shoot of Jesse. Because our Savior will come back and give a crushing blow to the head of the serpent. When he raises from the grave, it's right there. Death is swallowed up in victory. We look back and we say a Savior and a baby in a manger. Like we said last week, yes, a baby, but we see something much more glorious. We see us in a situation that we cannot solve. Us with a problem that we cannot overcome. Guilt we cannot get rid of. Sin we cannot pay for. And Jesus Christ, God himself, in order to rescue us, becomes like us. He takes on flesh. He, he enters into time and into space. And then he lives that life and he dies that death. That's how he saves us. And then this is kind of that after picture. After that, the enmity is done away with. And Christ returns and he finally puts him away. The battle is done between the seed of the child and the serpent. Jesus has won a crushing victory. And then we see the coming Eden, as it were, in Zion. Only the whole earth is filled with the hill of the Lord. Look at verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We need one challenge and then conclusion. We need... We're not Jesus, so I'm not calling you to be Jesus. But we are called to follow him, to be like him. One thing our church desperately needs, when I say our church, Redeemer, the church at large, is a spirit of wisdom and understanding, knowledge of the Lord and fear of the Lord. We're not, we're not recreating ourselves every 
year or two after the latest fad and, and learning the new way to say things to make sure we never ever offend anybody. And no, we don't need to needlessly offend anybody. I'm not saying that. But do we be willing to take up our cross, to suffer rejection and offense, the offense that comes with the gospel, that there is the way, the truth, the life in Jesus Christ. That we would not take ourselves so seriously, but take Jesus and what we do as a church so unseriously, that's a word, that we make Christ just a, a little offshoot, that, that he just becomes this tame sort of person we create who just walks according to the dictates of our life and is pleased that we give him some time now and then. But we'd be filled with the knowledge of the Lord and the fear of the Lord where he is front and center and moves what we do and say and think. And that we would just have a spirit of wisdom to see God's word, to think that we're not the one person that's always the exception to the rule, but we would submit ourselves to what the Lord has to say to us. So we look forward. Yes, we look back, but we look forward. The new heavens, the new earth, when the second advent, Christ shall return. He shall wipe every tear from our eye. He makes all things new. Jesus Christ is that perfectly qualified king. There is no gaps in his ability. There is no turning with him. He is the perfect king. Let me read verse 10 to summarize our thoughts. And then we'll close. And that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you.